0: Have you ever had to give up a dream that you had for life? Maybe there was an ambition to be a professional athlete or a performer or something else, and you had to give it up. I remember talking to an acquaintance once and he had hopes of being a professional football player. So throughout middle school and high school, he played football, he got to go to college and play football, and it was only in college that it dawned on him, wait, I'm only five foot nine. The chances of me making it to the NFL are pretty, pretty slim. Some folks have, I get that, but he realized, I better have a different plan for my life than being a professional athlete. I'm sure you've had those times when plan A got torn up and then you went to plan B. and That didn't work out, then you went to plan C. But what do you do when your plans for life are suddenly upended? People that we're gonna be reading about today, they weren't just on plan C, they were on plan Z. In fact, they would have never wanted to live in this future. They would have never wanted to live in the conditions in which they were living in. Their country had recently been overrun. A siege had been put against their city. They had been destroyed. Their temple, which sat at the center of their city, their, their, their pride and joy, they'd sacrificed so much. It had gold in it. It had bronze pillars. That had all been carted off by the Babylonians. And then, then to make matters worse, Some of them, and the people who are receiving this letter today that we're going to read, they had actually been carted off to Babylon itself. So they they weren't even in the land. They would have had hopes, perhaps, of growing up on their farm. To see the same fields that their grandfather and their great-grandfather had planted with wheat and barley to watch them ripen every fall. Those would have been dashed. Some of them might have had hopes of moving up in the temple courts, perhaps someday becoming a trusted advisor to the king. That was no more. They were now serving a foreign government government in a land that which was not their own. How do they respond? How are they supposed to live? As we're going to see, the script doesn't really change a whole lot. God is going to call them to three main things. He's going to call them, first of all, to live out the full processes of life to not hold back, to invest fully, to be fully engaged with life in this new place, even if it's not their home. Second, they're going to be called to serve the welfare of this city and to pray for it. And then finally, they're going to be called to live for the hope of the return, that one day God would, in fact, come to them and bring them back home. These are going to be the three commands that God gives them. And now, what, what sets them apart is so unique, in my mind, is to put ourselves in that situation. What would it be like to be with them? What would be the natural responses? So you can imagine with me, perhaps, let's just imagine Brazil, for instance, launches some kind of massive invasion. They come, they take over Pittsburgh, and they destroy everything. They take down UPMC Tower, the BNY Mellon. It's just a smoldering pile of ruins downtown. And then they take a good portion of us back to Sao Paulo, so you're going to work for us. Imagine being a part of those people. What, what, what would you think? Here's, here's how I would probably think about that. First of all, I'd be very bitter. I probably had friends that were now lost. I might be there and just, hmm, these Brazilians. I'd probably, maybe I'd try to get back at them, Plot a revolt. I'd be like, okay, you know what? I'll go along with this. I'll go along. But the first chance I get, I'm going to revolt. Or, I might just find the other Pittsburghers and say, we're going to survive. We're going to hunker down here. We're going to make sure we have each other's backs. We're getting out of here alive. There's all kinds of responses that are very natural to us. And when God calls them to be fully invested in this new world, to pray for its welfare, and then to hope for a return, God's asked them to do a lot of things that are really contrary to our nature. Things that strike us, as requiring divine grace, because it is a gracious way of living in a new place that you'd rather not live in, to live in a future and in a world that you did not choose. And God's gonna call them to be fully engaged in this new world, this new life. So turn with me now to Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll be reading a letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles in Jerusalem. And as we start off, we'll be reading some of the, some of the background to this letter to understand just the context of it. And we have... Starting off in verse one, we have just the superscript here which tells us who writes it and to whom. So Jeremiah writes this. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people, Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I wanna underscore a couple things here. First of all, this is Jeremiah, who's a prophet writing this second is that it's written to the surviving elders, prophets, priests. In the background, I think you should hear that some of them have been lost. There was a battle. Their friends would have died. And then the journey was long. Some of them might have died in in the journey. And so the writing, they realize loss is a real part of their life. They've lost people they love and they knew. All the things that would allow us to, to give ourselves into bitterness are there. And then it is from Jerusalem to Babylon. So on the left-hand side right here would be Jerusalem. They make the arduous journey across, probably would have gone up and around like this, down to Babylon, and that's where they are stationed. So they are far away from their homeland, and this is back in a day when you didn't have cell phones to go along and call mom and dad. You would have been cut off, aside from a few letters, like this one, from the homeland. Here we have a few more details. This is just a temporary timestamp for when this letter is written. It says, This was after King Jehoiachin and the Queen Mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. So again, it's reminding us, this is the upper echelon of society. And part of the reason why empires did this back then is to keep them from having a revolt. If you take all the leaders with you, guess what? There's no one left to stage a revolt. Artisans could help perhaps bang out some swords and other battle weapons, you remove them and guess what? Less likely to have a revolt from these conquered territories. Now the third one is how this letter gets to there. It says, he entrusted the letter to Elisah, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king, this was a puppet king, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And I think this is probably one of the first deliveries of the Camel Express. They would have taken it in, basically this is the Royal Mail. So this is the official correspondence going from Jerusalem back to the Babylon. And I'm gonna guess the Babylonians read his letter too, which I find interesting because there's the hope of return in the end. So you think about them surveying how those letters coming across to them and they're like, hmm, 70 years and then we're up. So I'd be curious how the Babylonians read this letter. I think I know how the exiles might have re- read, this, you know, read this letter. So it said, and now we go into the commands that it's going to deliver to these exiles, these people who are over in a land that they did not choose to live in. And God gives them this command. He's going to call them to live fully into life that they would have lived in the homeland. To do things like build houses, plant gardens, and to give their children away in marriage. I'm sorry, whoa, it's completely different. I forgot this transition. So this is an ancient letter. And as we read his letter, it's going to call these exiles to certain things. Now, we're reading it, and they are literally exiles. They've been ripped out of their homeland, put somewhere else. Now, you and I are not literally exiles. Most of us are citizens of the United States. This is the land we grew up in. We want to be here. So how do we read this letter? And And I would suggest this. We read it as metaphorical exiles. The language of exile gets applied to Christians in the New Testament. So here's 1 Peter, and he uses it at least twice in his letter. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So he's calling the Christians that he's writing to as exiles, meaning they're not in their full homeland. And here's, here's why he can use that kind of language. Our true citizenship, cis, citizenship is in heaven. And so our existence here is a temporary one. We are foreigners, we're sojourners, we're passing through because we have a fuller citizenship. We have a fuller belonging in another world. And Peter wants to remind his readers that there's another allegiance that we have. And so as we read this letter today, read it as a metaphorical exile. That we are temporary residents here with our full residence, our full citizenship in heaven, yet to be revealed in the days to come. So as we read these commands, I'm going to try to unpack them to us as metaphorical exiles living in the United States of America in the 21st century. And the first command is this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. One of the things going on in the background, so if you read the previous chapters, other prophets had said, you know what, they're going to be in exile, but only two years. Just give it two years. And Jeremiah's going to come back and say, no, actually it's a long time. It's 70 years. And as a result, you should be fully invested in this new land. Go and build a house. That's a major undertaking. Has anybody here built their own house? How many of you have built your own house? Okay, just a few. It's a major undertaking. It takes a long time, a lot of money. And even today in our world, they say, if you're not gonna live in a place for more than three to five years, it's cheaper to rent. Because the cost of buying a house, of actually owning a place is so high. And I imagine for them to make the bricks, to build the house, to furnish it, That's a long-term investment, and you only do that if you're going to live in that land for a long time. Only when you have a long-term perspective do you decide, I want to build a house, I want to make my home here. And that's what God calls them to do in this land of Babylon. Build your house, furnish it, plan to stay for a very long time. Then he also says plant gardens. Now when I think of gardens, I think of the torturous work that my parents subjected me to growing up where I was hoeing green beans and sweet corn. They probably would have had annual crops like that. But Middle Eastern gardens also have long-term crops, things like olive trees, things that take time to, to produce fruit. So again, the long-term perspective, plant these gardens, make them productive, and then eat that fruit, cultivate it. This will be your sustenance in the years to come. So God is calling them now to plan for the long-term, to sustain themselves. and Then he says, marry. Give your kids away in marriage. They're gonna have sons and daughters. And you'll have grandkids. You know, one of the things that first people people started, you know, backing off on when the COVID restrictions came into place were were weddings. People started delaying them. And later people have made, you know, accommodations for that, of how to have a wedding during the, the COVID era. But when you're under stress and when you are uncertain about the future, Long-term decisions like this, you, you start pulling back from. Like, oh, maybe we shouldn't get married. Maybe we'll wait a year. Or maybe we'll wait to have that next child. God's calling them, live fully into this. Don't hold up life for this. And now I want to be clear, I'm not saying we shouldn't make certain accommodations for living in COVID. I'm not saying just, hey, go back to normal life. All right? So I want to be very clear about that. And I think we should do it wisely of how we go about living through these normal processes of life. And a couple of weeks ago, I got to watch my roommate from college, actually get married online. From him, I know he would have preferred to have an in-person celebration. He loves parties. And so to only watch it from online was, was hard for me, but at the same time, that's part of the accommodations we have to make during this time. So I'm not saying, go back to normal, everybody. But here's the thing. For living in this world where they would be very tempted to just pull back, stop life, hunker down, make sure we're gonna survive, God calls them to live fully into it. Build those houses. Plant those gardens. Get married. Have kids. Give them away in marriage. Have grandkids. Don't pull back. So God calls them to live fully into this. One of the things that happens when we have trauma in our life is that we, like to rest- we first have to process it. And sometimes just the pain and the loss are the first things that hit us. And I'm going to pull a three-part stage here from, I was, say some psychologists or therapists who talk about different stages of dealing with trauma. And the first stage is, is just recognizing where we're victimized. This is where the pain is, is so powerful we can't really get past it. We're, we're overcome by it and we're fixated on it in, in many ways. Then over time we learn to deal with the pain, we find strategies to get ahead, we find ways to survive, ways to navigate that, and so we become survivors. And Sometimes in the survivor mode, we can have that grin and bear it, like, yeah, life's hard, but I found a way to make it work. And over time, when healing has taken place, we can then move into the final one, which is being a thriver. And a thriver is one who's aware of their full potential. Yes, others have hurt them. They're aware of the pain and the trauma, but now they're able to claim their, their power, their ability to shape the future, to make decisions that are gonna shape the future in a particular way. And as a result, they can go and do things like build houses, give their kids away in marriage because they know that's going to shape what the future looks like. God's calling them into this place of living in a thriving state. And it's not to say you should never be in a victim or survivor state. I want to be clear about that. But not to get stuck there. And it's easy to get stuck at any one of those stages and just say, I'm just going to stay here because it feels good at each one of those stages. And we can put on the brakes and kind of hold out there. But a part of the healing is the journey on and come to a place where we're seeing that God has in fact given us power to influence and power to use that well going into the future. And God calls the exiles here to live at a place in which they thrive. To claim the power that is theirs. To shape their community in a certain way. And I think for us, as as we, as a faith community, navigate where we are, I, I hear a lot of different conversations about where the faith community is going to be vis-a-vis, you know, legal authorities and other things in the United States. And there's Christians, I think, responding at all different levels of this. And we probably have to work through some of these of where we have, in fact, suffered loss. So there are losses that we do, in fact, have to grieve. Prayer being taken out of public schools, for, for instance, one of those that has been lost. And so we can be worried about that and, and stuck there. And there are some Christians who lead with, this is, what I, this is what my community has lost. There's also those who are a bit more the, the survivor of, well, I'm just gonna hunker down, I'm gonna grin and bear it, and we'll get through this. I know of somebody recently, and this is influenced also by their view of the end times, they, they sold a house that they had built. They sold a house that they had built because they were convinced the end times was coming. And so they wanted to get rid of all their debt, so they liquidated their house, moved into a smaller home, and are now awaiting the end of the world. That's more of a, I'm going to survive, I'm going to figure out how to get through this. But it's a survivor approach. Now, each of those probably has its place. But I think it's metaphorical exile that's more attractive to those on the outside world, to live from a place of thriving. I would caution us from, for instance, being too quick to play the victim card. There's a place to express that. But what our non-Christian friends often hear, they often hear us whining if we just go there. Or if we're just grinning and bear it, what we often hear is like, well, they're tough, but what's really energizing them? But it's the people who live with a sense of thriving, a sense of, I have a power to shape. I might not, I I might actually want more power, more authority, but I'm gonna actualize what I do have and make the best of what I do have. That looks more attractive to those looking in from the outside, of saying, what motivates them? And you can imagine the Babylonians watching these Jewish exiles, thinking, what motivates these people who've been subjugated, who've been conquered, who've lost their temple? What motivates them to actually want to come to Babylon and serve us? And we know that they did. You go and read the book of Daniel, guess what? Daniel, Meshach, and his friends, guess what do they do? They study the Babylonian culture, and they excel. They rise to the top of their class. They're promoted in the government. They're not over there just bitter. No, 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 they, they rise because they live in a place where I I'm, imagine they might have been in that place because they read a letter like this that said, build houses, marry, look to the future because God is gonna be in it for you. And so God calls them there to live fully into life. To not pull back, not to hunker down, not to circle the wagons, but to be engaged, to give themselves fully to there. Now, the next part's even more surprising to me. That that part was surprising. But the next command, he says, Be about producing the shalom, the peace of this city. Imagine that. Your enemy. The folks who killed your friends, your family perhaps you're now supposed to work for their peace, their well-being. So let's read this verse together. God says, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So they're supposed to seek the peace. In Hebrew, this word is, is shalom. And shalom isn't just, hey, we're okay relationally. Shalom has a sense that everything's ordered. Everything's functioning well. And as a result, the NIV has put the word prosperity in here. And I think that's a fine addition. My fear is that we often read that as economic. We only think of one kind of prosperity. But I think this would be an all-encompassing prosperity, not just economic. It would be relational, educational. It It would have all factors of life that you can possibly imagine, say, all those need to be ordered well and functioning That's the kind of peace that they're supposed to now pursue in this foreign land, among their enemies. Seek the peace, seek the welfare of that city. And then, God says, pray for it. So this is is just an irony, I think. The Babylonians had gone into God's temple, stripped it of its valuables, carted them all back to Babylon... And from a Babylonian perspective, that God is is weak. And God now calls his people in exile in Babylon saying, you now in this foreign land, pray to me and I'm going to actually give peace to your enemies. Wow. God's willing to suffer what might seem a, a loss of reputation to again reveal himself in a whole new way in this place. So he invites his people to pray that he again would bring. And what's he going to bring? He's going to bring the well-being to the city. And notice here it says, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So God calls them in this foreign land to be about the well-being of Babylon, to think past their own individual good, to think about how can Babylon thrive? And that's why you have exiles who can be like Daniel, Meshach, Bendigo who can serve that government and serve it well, help it thrive. Now this strikes us as odd. As we go into an election in a couple weeks, we often think about our votes and we can think about it very individualistically. Well this candidate's going to make my taxes lower. Or this candidate's going to keep my insurance coverage. And in fact, haven't they pitched themselves to us this way? Like, if you vote for that guy, he's going to take away your tax, o- tax dollars, or that person's going to take away your health insurance. And it can motivate us to think very individualistically about what's going to benefit me. Or it can be what's going to benefit my group. So I'm an evangelical Christian, so what's going to benefit us? But this is even more broader of a view what's going to help Babylon? And so as someone situated in Pittsburgh, in western Pennsylvania, in the United States, I need to think about, how how do I bring shalom, how do I bring peace and well-being to the entire sphere of influence that I have? I can probably work that more fully at a local level than I can at a a higher level, but still, we are called, and I think as metaphorical exiles, we'll still do the same kind of thing. We'll think about, what's it look like to bring well-being to our world, where we have influence? It can happen in a number of different ways. It can, first of all, happen at your workplace. I think most of us are tempted to make work trump the family. And if you, perhaps you're you're high up in your company and you say, you know what, I'm going to go make sure I get to my kid's soccer game today. A move like that can inform those lower down that, you know what, it's okay to value family. It can help build a culture at your company where Family isn't just the caboose that follows the job, but rather there's some boundaries to be able to put in place. So you can make those kinds of efforts. There's another person I, I looked at, and this is Steve Green, who's the president of Hobby Lobby. And he, he talks about negotiating contracts. And I've been on the back end of this where it's not been so helpful, but you know, negotiating contracts up front, you've got, sometimes you want to make sure you're the lowest bidder. And there are some underhanded ways of trying to win bids, of intentionally bidding low to get the bid. And then once you're in it, like, oh, you know what? We didn't factor in transportation costs or we didn't add this to it. And suddenly, the costs balloon. Steve Green says, you know, for a company, when we're negotiating costs, we say, here's what we're going to pay, and that's it. It might be high, it might be low, we're not sure. But we're giving you our bottom line. There won't be any inflated costs added later. But to be honest up front, to say, here's my price, that's all there is to it. Having been on the back end where people keep inflating costs, (sighs) let me tell you, there's a lot of anger. There's not shalom when you're dealing with a contract when people are trying to inflate the cost on the back end. It brings a lot of angst. So just being an upfront, honest business person can be part of that. But it doesn't just have to be in vocation. It could be in your neighborhoods. You know, right now, I know we're all dealing with, with COVID and trying to figure out how to navigate that. So... Maybe there's playdates to have with your family. And maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm not cool with a playdate. I'm not going to the park with the jungle gyms and all that stuff. Maybe take a walk with that family down the street. Just go up and say, hey, you take one side of the street, I got the other, that's more than six feet. We'll walk and we'll talk. There's all different kinds of way to live into this. It, and part of it is just loving the people closest to us. To bring shalom to the communities in which we live. To bring peace, to help it be ordered well according to God's standards. Because in its welfare, we will find our own. So God calls these exiles to have a perspective beyond just their individual survival. He calls them to help Babylon itself thrive. So you and I today, as citizens of the United States of America, how can we help our neighborhoods, our communities, our city, our country thrive? That is the call to us as metaphorical exiles. So we've seen these two things. God calls them to live with a perspective of investing for the future, building houses, planting gardens, marrying. He's called them to seek the shalom of those around. And now he says, live with the hope for the return. Live as if this is not going to be your homeland forever. So here's what God says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) He just told them, yeah, invest for the long term. Increase there. Plant these gardens. Build these houses. And guess what? You won't be there forever. You'll be coming back. And so God has them in this really interesting position where they're supposed to be leaning into the future, investing for it, and yet knowing this is their temporary home. It will not be their home forever. Now, as God goes on in this promise, there's a verse that I'm sure you're all familiar with. First of all, I'm going to take it away from you. But I promise to give it back. And I think when I give it back, it'll be more dear. So here's the next couple of verses where God says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and, place you, and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So often I hear this verse read very individualistically. So the very first verse says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And it's like, oh, yes. Especially when you're a young person heading off to college. You're like, I've got a great future. Woohoo! God's got this awesome plan for me. And though in the night, he could have a good plan for you. But this verse is not about you as a person. This is written to those exiles. So think about that. You're in exile. Your homeland's destroyed. Perhaps part of your family's no longer living. Your temple's gone. In that place, it seems pretty dire. The future does not seem very hopeful, does it? And it's to those people that this is written, where God says, I have a plan for you. You exile who feel like there's no hope in the future, I've got a great plan for you. That's the people to whom God is writing. So when we read this, let's read it as a letter to the literal exile, because I think in that, it opens up for us something else. Because it reminds us that God can undo the worst situation you can possibly think you're in. That God is the one who can take a country that's been demolished and with people sent far away and then bring them back and reconstitute his country. That's the God we serve. And so God can take a heap of ruins and rebuild it under Ezra and Nehemiah. God can move his people to restore what they once lost. That's the God we serve. How that might strike us today, you know, I hear people talking about different positions they're taking regarding the election. I've heard a lot of fear. Some are worried that we won't have a country in a few years. I don't know what your fear is. I hear a lot of fear just from the candidates themselves saying, you vote the other person in, this is what you're gonna have. So I don't know what your fear is going into this next couple of weeks. But consider that fear, take the worst of those fears. Now, what if it happens? I I would like to promise you that I had some direct revelation from God, that's not gonna happen. I tend to be one who (laughs) discounts fear very quickly. I would love to say, don't worry, your your fear's not gonna happen. But let's just say it does. I imagine the situation they're living in is probably worse. I don't wanna discredit your fear, but my, my guess is having had your country overrun, having your kids carted off to a different country, forced into pretty much slavery to serve another country, I imagine that's really bad. And it's to those people that God says, I've got a hope for you, I've got a plan. It's a really good plan, just wait for this. That's the God we serve that can take a situation that's so bleak, so unhopeful, and say, I still have a good future in store. So wherever your fear takes you today, Here's what I invite you to do. Give that to God. He's the one who can undo it. He's restored his people before. He's protected his people through the exile. He can protect you, your family. He can protect whomever he should choose. God is powerful, and this is the God we serve. And so, if we take this verse, I say we take it in that way, that it is a God who can redeem broken, hopeless situations and restore them back to what they once had. To restore that glory that was lost. But in this, I don't want us to miss something else that's very important. Because the reason for the exile wasn't just that Babylon was strong and Israel was weaker. The reason for the exile was that Israel had forsaken its God. That Israel had turned its back on the one who had chosen her to be a light to the nations. And in the middle of this, there is this recalling on God. The people are going to recall on God with with your whole heart. There's no longer this attachment to the other gods, the other things. No, no, no. It's a full-on, Lord, we need you. So what's coming back to them is also this rekindling of their desire, their longing for God. And that can be there regardless of what happens in our external circumstances. And so where are you today? Are you back in this place where you're seeking honestly, earnestly, with your whole heart for God? This is what he wanted from the little exiles, and he said it would be. And at the end of that, when they called on God, he would answer them. He would respond, and then he would bring them home. The exiles would no longer stay in Babylon. In history, though, this does happen, but not all the exiles return. So, in 539 BC, another empire comes along and destroys Babylon. King Cyrus, who rules the Pers- Medes and Persians at the time, sends the exiles back home. He had the opposite plan that the Babylonians had. Instead of taking people away to keep them from revolting, he decided to be nice to them. Who would have thought? And so, he sends all the artifacts from the temple, all the vessels that have been stolen, he takes them and sends them all back. says, go back, rebuild your temple, rebuild your land. Wow, how about that? This happens. And yet, and yet, a lot of the exiles still remain in Babylon. They'd increased. They had built their houses. They'd planted their gardens. And I imagine when you do all that work, it's hard to leave it. Over the course of 100 years, there was a slow migration back to the homeland. And so one of the temptations of investing and and leaning into the future of, of doing a lot of work here is that our hearts become attached to it. And this is where I think it's so unique. God calls them to be fully invested and then ready to leave when he says it's time to go back home. I don't know what you're attached to. We get attached to all kinds of things. We get attached to our houses, our cars, our friends. God might, in fact, call you to go somewhere else. God might call you to go to take a job somewhere else, and you might have to leave the things you've come to love here in Pittsburgh. Would you be willing to do that for his sake? I know folks who say, nope, family first. I'm not leaving my family. I'm not gonna do it. God's call, when he's ready to call, his call should supersede everything else we've become attached to. And what he's asking these exiles to do is to live life fully like you care about it here and do care about it. And then, at a moment's notice, when God says it's time to come back home, you drop it. Say, Lord, it's yours. I'm your servant. And so, for you and I, as metaphorical exiles living in the 21st century, there's a lot to become attached to. Not that our hearts come to love. How ready are you to return to the homeland? How dear is your citizenship in heaven? Is it more dear than anything else that you have? Are you willing, should God call you home, to drop it and say, Lord, I trust you with the rest of it. My true home is with you. God calls these exiles to be ready, ready to return back to Jerusalem, ready to build a whole new life back in a a place that would now be foreign to them. After 70 years, it, it now feels foreign to go back home. But God would call them back, and they would. Some of them, at least, would go back, rebuild life in Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and again, move forward as a Jewish community. And so as you and I face this world, I would ask us, where are our attachments? Where do our true allegiances lie? To what degree are we building peace in the city-state in which we reside? God calls us to be these kinds of agents in this day and this age. And as we end, I'm gonna invite you just to do one of the things that the, the verses ask us to do, and that's pray. It says, pray for the prosperity and the peace of, of the city. So I'm gonna just invite you, I'm gonna give you a minute, just pray. Pray for Pittsburgh, whatever township you live in, our state, and our country. And ask for the Lord to bring us peace, that you would also be an agent of peace in those places. Let's pray. Lord, our land is not one of peace right now. We have unrest, we have concerns, we've got fears, and we pray that you would move in your church. Lord, help us see the opportunities to be agents of peace in our world whether that's loving a neighbor, whether that's making an impact in a broader sphere, I pray you would open up places where we can be these agents, these kinds of exiles that live for the long term but also are detached enough to leave it on the altar. Lord, move in us to have hearts that are fully set on you, fully owned by you and you alone able to work and be present, but also able to leave it and leave it in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.